All right, so um, kind of the theme I was talking about earlier was that um, uh, thought doesn't play the central role uh, in our lives um, the way it appears. Um, I like to describe it in terms of the pre-Galilean uh, perspective, which was uh, essentially the idea that uh, everything in the universe revolved around the Earth. And when Copernicus uh, and Galileo essentially decentralized the order of the universe, it was very frightening for people. The idea that everything doesn't revolve around us, that in fact the Earth is just another planet in a universe of planets, that we're not at the epicenter of all um, uh, experience, uh, at first was greeted with a great degree of resistance, to say the least, and um, a great degree of um, anger, uh, the idea that uh, human beings were not essentially put in the absolute center of the universe and that everything revolves around us. Uh, even though, of course, it seems that way. Uh, if we uh, didn't investigate experience very closely, it would certainly look to us as if the sun is revolving around us and that all the stars and that we're absolutely in the center. It takes actually some close investigation to find out, in fact, that we're not at the center of the universe. And so the Buddha was pretty much the first major thinker um, that essentially decentralized the mind and proposed that the conscious thinking mind is not, in fact, the epicenter of our actions, the things we do but actually it's something that comes up very, very late and has a very different role than, we, than it appears, much like the Earth appears to be in the center of everything. Consciousness or conscious thought uh, feels as if it's organizing our actions. It feels and it seems as if I think something and then I do it. It seems as if um, that... Uh, the thing that's giving my life a common thread and me a common uh, consistent identity is my thinking, is uh, uh, the words, the inner chatter, the self-narration that goes on in my mind. Um, the Buddha actually came around in 2,500 years ago, and one of his core teachings was that, in fact, well before thought arrives in the equation, there are what he called um, feelings and emotional states that arise and create impulses that essentially uh, determine much of our actions. He had words for them like anusayas and vedna and stuff like that. I'm not going to go into the Pali term. But in his chain of causation, thought arrived very, very late as a kind of a more than anything else, an explanatory quality than actually something that always was 
choosing, guiding our actions uh, in charge of the things that we do. Now, <clears throat> this idea kind of lay dormant in the West for a very, very, very long time until a philosopher named Hume uh, wrote a discourse on human nature. And he actually proposed uh, what at the time was uh, greeted with a great deal of hostility that in Western uh, philosophy that in fact thought and conscious uh, inner chatter was in fact just one of many different parts of the mind that all play essential roles. Uh, he called it the bundle theory. And then once again, the idea sort of lay dormant and was picked up and dropped until at around the same time, two different uh, important thinkers in the West, one named Freud and the other named William James, at around the exact same time, 1895 to 1898, discovered on their own what we now refer to as the unconscious. The idea being that uh, volitional thought, the, the conscious ideas the, or the role in Freudian thought of the ego is not, in fact, organizing and motivating all of our actions, but that very often, uh, to use a Freudian metaphor, thought is kind of the tip of the iceberg raising above the water level, which is all of the unconscious impulses that come before our actions that sort of guide us and impel us to behave the way we do. So uh, William James said the same thing. He did it from an entirely different model. He used the idea that we see a bear, we don't first think, oh bear, I better run, uh, and then we run. He actually said, when we see a bear, it's unconscious. It activates an unconscious desire to flee and then afterwards we narrate what happened. And it's just a trick of the brain that makes it seem that thought came very early, but actually it came late. Now, in around the year uh, 1985 to 90, finally neuroscientists like Ledoux and Gazaniga arrived and showed that Freud and James were absolutely correct, and I should add the Buddha, that uh, as Gazaniga showed in his experiments, that in fact thought is the slowest circuit, circuit in the brain, arrives after most of our impulses have already determined what to do, and that essentially what our thinking mind generally does is often just add a story to why we act the way we act, why we behave the way we behave, why we have the fear, the anxiety, they, uh, all the things we do are essentially, essentially explained after the fact. So this is an important thing to bear in mind, that we are essentially living in minds that are desperately scrambling to try to explain why we behave the way we behave. And there's nothing that makes the mind scramble more create more thought, more narration, more storytelling than when we have emotional impulses that don't fit into the emotional impulses that we want to have. The times when we want to write a paper and we procrastinate and we don't get anything done, uh, 
The time that we want to feel confident on a date or when we're making a presentation and instead we come across tongue-tied and awkward and self-conscious. The times in life where we want to present ourselves as funny and the life of the party and instead we feel extremely stilted and uh, awkward. All the times that the, uh, we start to realize that there's something else going on in our minds besides the inner chatter and that, that something else doesn't want to do the exact same things that our inner chatter and that our volitional thought wants. I'm sure by now this has happened to you. <laughs> I hope it has. <laughs> if not, this will be all very mysterious. Um, so, actually, the, to step back for a moment to make all of this make sense, all of us start our lives as children without inner chatter. And what we do is we communicate our states of being to our parents, our caretakers, through emotions, through nonverbal, physiological cries, tantrums, gesturing with our arms, with all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, 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 body states, all kinds of utterances that have no verbal or thought contained in them. And to the degree that our caretakers uh, see our emotions, we feel connected and safe, like we can emotionally communicate with the people around us. Connection, being securely attached for an infant, is everything. All of our major anxieties as human beings throughout our life, the neurotic anxiety that somebody will see something in us that they'll find unlovable and reject us, decompensation anxiety, separation anxiety, all boils down to the fear that other people will abandon us. It's that strong, the need for us to emotionally connect with other people. We start out the first four years of our lives largely non-verbally connecting, even though children around three or four start beginning to use a little bit of language, still the bulk of the way they attach to other children, through caretakers, through adults, is through nonverbal expression. And the degree that parents see, tolerate, mirror back, and essentially help the child understand the emotions and feel empowered to use emotions, those emotions we will feel entitled for the rest of our life to use as we bond with each other. And make no mistake, no matter what you're told uh, or what you've been informed by the dominant culture, uh, amongst the most important human tasks we have is to emotionally connect with other people on a level where we feel empathetically tolerated and seen and understood, not just by our views and opinions, but our feelings, our emotions, both fun emotions and dark emotions are well tolerated. So some emotions uh, will not be so well tolerated. Uh, my sister and I grew up with essentially what could be called first generation Americans. There was a lot of emphasis on assimilation. My father was not the most, um, uh, well let's say he was a pretty macho guy. And 
he was a little bit intolerant of any of many of my emotional activations. Uh, any time I remember showing fear to him, he was extremely threatened by that because I gather that from his background, fear in men was seen as deeply unattractive and threatening to him. And so he sort of, through his emotional responses, very quickly disempowered fear in my lexicon of emotional vocabulary. And uh, whenever I felt that, I didn't feel empowered to express it. I felt the need to uh, make it go away, for that emotion to be repressed. Um, frustration, disappointment, uh, anger, a lot of different emotions I was informed in my childhood were not always particularly welcome. I would say that our my parents, from my perspective, they were very, very encouraging for creativity. Um, so it was a very welcoming environment for creative expression, but interpersonal expression of frustration, uh, anger, and uh, fear, I felt, was generally punished, at least for me. I don't want to speak for Natasha, but that was my dominant experience. So I, um, when I started to have those emotions in my life, I felt the need to repress them as quickly as possible. And of course, we repress emotions in a number of ways. Um, we can, when an, a loneliness comes up, we can start to binge eat, or we can turn on Netflix to create the impression that there are other people in our life. If um, the feeling of fear comes up, in my case, I sought, when I was a teenager, drugs and alcohol as a way to self-numb and to remove those emotions because I was trained that you can't express these uh, impulses and emotions to adults. You'll be punished, you'll be rejected, you'll be abandoned. So whereas a whole bunch of feelings I felt empowered to express, there was a whole other group um, I was disempowered of. There are many different repressive tools that people learn to manage and remove and essentially uh, cut off their impulses and their core authentic emotional states so that other people won't see them. Some of us rely on reaction formation, which is essentially creating the emotion that we think other people want to see. So trying to be confident, trying to appear like we're um, in control, that everything's going well in our life when it's not, trying to appear happy or trying to appear um, uh, intellectual. Um, there are other strategies. Uh, some people are trained to become caregivers from a very early age. Their expression of their deep needs are not well received, so they learn the only way they can manage relationships is by taking care of their parents and managing their parents' emotions. And uh, at times I felt like my role with my father was essentially caretaking his emotions rather than ever expressing my own. Uh, some of us are trained towards histrionic and narcissistic uh, approaches to getting our needs met. I believe that one person who's running for president right now is a clear case of uh, completely obvious narcissistic personality disorder 
that his needs were not met in his childhood, and the only way he learned to get any secure attention was by constantly overemphasizing his abilities and his achievements. Um, other of us learn perfectionism, the idea that we can't ever fail because we believe we'll be punished, uh, rationalizing and uh, intellectualizing our ways to retreat into the mind rather than to connect with emotions that are unpopular. So all these are repressive techniques. I would say that in our misogynistic culture, uh, and in my one-on-one -on -one work with now over the last 12 years, uh, well over several hundred different uh, individuals, that very often in our culture women are disempowered from feeling that they can hold and, and express anger. Um, very many women are conditioned and socialized to feel disempowered of anger. And they're informed at a very early age that it is not a state of being that is welcome in their family systems, in their peer groups, in their other socializing institutions such as schools and whatnot. Men are very often, as was my case, disempowered of um, expressing uh, fear or uncertainty, self-doubt, and um, so we are uh, conditioned more to uh, manifest uh, emotions that will be rewarded by peers and in institutions being confident, having a point of view that will defend to the death, uh, regardless of uh, the effects it takes on other people. Um, in our misogynistic culture, very often young women are conditioned to uh, always express either tolerance or maintain consensus in groups rather than uh, ha be feel empowered to experience anger. Now, if it sounds that anger and fear are not very good emotions, uh, actually they're very important emotions, and without them we lead, um, we will struggle in all of our interpersonal lives. Um, anger, if you don't feel empowered to experience it, it will be very difficult to set boundaries in relationships. Anger is the underlying emotional structure that allows us to say to someone, this is not okay, this is not acceptable to me, I don't feel safe when you do this, I don't feel um, that my needs are being met if uh, this is what happens, I feel uh, uncomfortable. Without anger, we don't feel permitted to set boundaries that make us safe. We'll navigate around conflict, and all setting boundaries requires doing something that feels unsafe. It requires going to someone who's acting unskillfully, that's in our lives, and saying this is not okay. That doesn't feel very safe. That feels risky. And if we don't have anger to give us permission, then we will probably navigate around that important task. Anger also serves a very important quality in motivating people to confront social injustice. Um, in my experience, uh, as an activist in uh, certainly my 20s, 
invo- deeply involved in an organization called CISPIS, and uh, which was uh, trying to uh, help the citizens of El Salvador who were essentially being killed off by American-sponsored right-wing death squads. Um, I found that a lot of us came to activism motivated by anger and that a lot of people that uh, it was a a core uh, motivator, emotional energy that allowed us or that gave us the, um, the permission to confront Injustice, and that too is scary. It's not always fun um, uh, uh, confronting, marching, uh, a direct action is not always, doesn't always feel safe. So we need emotional vitality beneath these actions. Um, when I went to Zuccotti Park, in 2011 and was part of the Occupy Wall Street meetings there, it was still uh, wonderful to see how people worked skillfully with anger rather than using it as something that led to um, uh, some unskillful aims, ends like it very often can do. Anger can actually be used to motivate us to do things that are very, I think, righteous. Um, Fear is also an important emotional uh, motivation. Without fear, we don't know how to leave situations that are endangering. We don't know how to give ourselves permission to uh, get out of um, the, uh, we'll we'll be overachieving. We will constantly try to accumulate and meet Uh, artificial goals, and we won't give ourselves permission to know when we are overrun, when we're taking on too much, when we are essentially wearing ourselves thin, when we don't feel capable. Um, A lot of people wait until anger or fear become so repressed and are still seeking our attention that when they come up, they come up in a really dysregulated form where they no longer can be skillfully worked with, where in fact anger has to be vented, where it causes harm, where fear leads to panic attacks or to anxiety attacks, rather than simply giving us permission to rebalance our lives and reprioritize. So the key is um, with both anger and fear and other emotions that are often disempowered to one, rather than view these as unskillful states of being that have to be removed, to actually view these as important messages that let us know um, that elements in our life are out of balance, that relationships are taking tolls that we can't sustain, that we need to essentially take more into consideration than trying to look good to the world, trying to look, trying to present, which is all the thinking left hemisphere cares about, and that we actually have to bear in mind our actual human capabilities, and we have to prioritize how well connected we are to other people. very often we can get trapped in this either act it out or get rid of emotions rather than turning towards them, understanding them, regulating them, and then acting 
in a way that integrates them. I'll give you an example. Uh, this, these are two things that um, actually happens to me. I like to disclose my own issues so that I don't seem like I'm somebody who's solved or fixed or on some other shore of uh, the spiritual divide. Um, I was riding over, my, after teaching, I was riding my, bri- my bike over the Williamsburg Bridge, and um, there was nobody else on the bridge except for somebody about uh, 30 feet in front of me. So I took it as an opportunity to just look in, take in the sights of the city. It's a beautiful view. And then when I looked back, the person who was about 30 feet had actually stopped and positioned their bike parallel, blocking both lanes of the bike, of the, both bike lanes. So I had to come to a screeching stop, and we we wound up being no more than three feet away from each other. And I gave him a quizzical look because I really didn't understand what he was doing. Um, and uh, he looked at me, and then I just shrugged and continued on my way uh, over the bridge. And as I rode away from him, he said, in quotes, sorry I ruined your fucking night, asshole. So I thought, oh, wow, he actually read a lot into my look that really wasn't there. But then my brain fired up with indignation and all the things I should tell this yuppie guy who was moving into my neighborhood, gentrifying, driving all the prices up, uh, all of us tattooed artists who lived there for 20... This is my thinking, right? (laughs) Uh, so the outrage goes on, the storytelling, it's activating now not just anger, but outrage. It's transforming anger into something that is, I'm going to vent. I'm going to vent it. I'm going to take it out on this guy. I'm going to stop right there and go right back. And I'm going to be the Buddhist teacher who winds up in a headline of you know the New York Daily News for getting into a fist fight with a yuppie on the Williamsburg Bridge. And then... Um, another voice kicks up, which is, what is the matter with me? I'm a Buddhist teacher, and I have anger? I am such a failure. I am such a sham. So that, if you haven't gotten, it is the voice of the superego, the regulating, introjected voice of the parents saying, you're doing it all wrong. You're not being the way that, you're not presenting in the world the way you should be. So I go back and forth between the self-righteous goody-two-shoots, inner Buddhist that never has any anger, and then the outraged Dharma punk, you know, guy with the tattoos who's going to show what's what. And what wasn't happening was I actually wasn't connecting with the actual energy of anger in the body, understanding, holding it, and then asking myself, how could I meet its needs? So when I go into the stories back and forth, it's a form of essentially transforming uh, a real important energy that allows us to feel safe in the world, and it essentially attempts to repress it by turning it all into a lot of storytelling in the mind. Another example is whenever my teacher Noah calls me, um, Noah is the only person in my life that really holds any power over me. Uh, And he doesn't even really today hold any power, but he's the closest thing to um, somebody who I feel has any authority in my life. So whenever I get a call from him, it activates the old feelings of when I would get a call from my father. 
and I immediately feel fear. Oh no, this can't be good. This has to be something bad. He's he's obviously calling me up to tell me something that I'm not going to want to hear. And so I start to go through all this runaway trying to figure out what he's going to say before I actually get the phone call. And I feel the uh, spinning out of catastrophizing, like, what what's going on now? And rather than simply feeling the emotion of that's activated by the fact that the other dominant male figure in my life, my father, was not a safe person. So whenever I get a phone call from a uh, male authority figure, for me, it activates fear. So in both cases, what tends to happen is I tend to transform the core authentic emotional expression, which is embodied, somatic, into a whole bunch of storytelling where I try to figure it out to make it go away. Um, a lot of us worry rather than feel fear. A lot of us daydream about success in the world rather than feel loneliness. A lot of us develop a whole host of uh, cognition patterns to essentially disembody us, to keep us as far away from the core emotions that are there waiting to be um, discerned, waiting to be recognized, waiting to be understood, waiting to be um, integrated into our lives skillfully. So um, the key ways to process emotions fall into two categories. The first is uh, for them to be felt. This is what's known in psychology as bottom-up processing as opposed to top-down processing. The key is to connect with the actual uh, sensory interoceptive experience that's going on throughout our lives rather than always feeling the um, habitual impulse to flee embodied experience for what Winnicott called essentially the false self of um, inner chatter, which feels very safe because the left hemisphere doesn't have very many uh, neuronal connections with the body. It's this abstract realm where we can visualize and create fantasies, and it feels like we can get rid of our entire emotional life simply by going off into that realm. So the core practice of emotion regulation in our lives and emotion integration starts with embodied awareness. So what I do, I don't leave that to one part of the day. Throughout the day, I have a very quick 30-second practice that I do after every single interview, after every single talk, after every single engagement. It's simply I check what the breath is like. I check my shoulders where I carry a lot of stress and overwhelm, and then I check my stomach because I carry a lot of fear and uh, worry there. Sometimes if there's been something that feels really disappointing, I'll also check whether the chest feels contracted or not. That whole practice is very quick, but it's, uh, it's not a notional idea of what's going on in the body. It's an actual sensory reconnection and embracing of the way the emotional mind speaks to us. The uh, second 
key practice in emotion regulation is communication with somebody else. Communication is not entirely based on words. It's the meeting with somebody, the permission to say to them, I want to just express how I'm feeling right now, and I don't need to be fixed or solved or told what to do. I just need to have a safe space where I can express how I'm feeling. And it's the permission to have the cracks in the voice, the sadness or the anger, the emotional expression on the face and in the body. It's meeting someone's attuned glance, which means making eye contact. It's uh, having them take in not just our words, but our entire state of being, which is communicating the fullness of our emotions. When we're around somebody who essentially maintains attunement, which means they stay with us, they maintain eye contact and proximity, and they also maintain um, a tolerant state where they don't uh, visually criticize or what's known as stonewalling, look, roll their eyes, express contempt. They stay present. And then finally, they mirror back the emotions, which is not saying, oh yeah, I know how that feels, but more empathetically, they express, they get it, by expressing to some degree through a facial expression, through the quality of the tone of their voice, some nonverbal way they mirror back the emotion that I'm experiencing. When I do that, when that happens in my life, I'm not just understood, which is sympathy, left hemispheric, I'm deeply emotionally connected, which is through nonverbal emotional attunement and mirroring. And that's where the right hemisphere is addressed and feels securely connected and where suddenly all the loneliness or the anxiety or the overwhelm begins to slowly be regulated because I'm addressing its core needs. I'm connecting with other people. So um, I'm going to leave it there. That's a lot of stuff to throw out at you. I believe as if you got it from the, me the early meditation that a key role in spiritual practice is not just to cultivate uh, states of serenity and calm, but to, act, but to do this work of through somatic and mood awareness, uh, embodied uh, cognition to uh, connect with all of the different messages that are the rest of our experience is sending us so that we can live fully integrated lives. So I hope there was something worth thinking about in there. I'm going to turn this...